Welcome to Clinical Research Confidential. On this show, we highlight and demystify the inner workings of this greatly misunderstood activity called clinical research. Now, why is clinical research important? Well, it's the basis for nearly every modern remedy for sickness and a growing method to build trust and solutions meant to optimize health. But it's not for the faint of heart. And so on this show, you'll hear what it really takes to succeed in the clinical research game. I'm your host, Joseph Kim, and I've spent over 23 years in the clinical research industry, now serving as the Chief Strategy Officer for Proof Pilot. Get ready for some adventures as we look into the underbelly of clinical research. So today I'm here with the OG of clinical research content, Dan Sfera. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joseph. How's it going, man? It's, it's uh, yeah, it's going well. You look the same as when we first met. You know, back in <laughs> we never met in person, I don't think, but we met virtually many times, and you look the same. Thank you. I did turn fifty <laughs> this year, so it feels actually I'm in the best shape of my life because I finally decided to work out, and get off my butt. You so, look a little different because you have a beard now. I think the first time yeah. we met, you were clean shaven, but the beard looks good on Clean cut. Thank you. Thank you. For sure. So listen, like I said, you started a lot of this very good in-depth content around teaching people about clinical research a long time before anyone else was doing it. Tell us, I mean, I want to hear a little bit more about your clinical research journey, but let's start with why you decided to go on YouTube and start to help people understand like what it takes to be a good clinical research site. Let's jump into chapter four here. Like, Tell us why you started doing that. So there's a danger with the revisionist history and you making out like 13 years later, you're like, oh, this is why I actually did it. The real reason was it took a few series of steps. So I started in 2005 at a research site. I was thrown into the mix, not knowing a thing, Joseph. I mean, nothing, man. I was pre-med student and I had like a 2.3 GPA in undergrad, (laughs) molecular and cellular bio. And there was no chance I was getting into med school. So I decided to intern at my dad's. My dad was one of like five PIs. None of them knew what they were doing at a site, a small site. And their director they hired ended up siphoning money to another company. Like she basically made a shadow company with similar name. And like she was sneaky on the contract. So just changed a little bit name of the payee and boom, she was able to get into her account. So then when we couldn't pay staff, well, not we, but the leadership couldn't pay their coordinator. Coordinators left. So I was there interning and people are just leaving, like walking out. And I'm like, all right. I remember my dad told me to take a box of files to the director's home because she was no longer partner with them once they found out. And that's it. And when I came back, my dad's like, look, either you figure out how to do this or just go find a job. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, all right, CRA. I mean, I don't think I can get a CRA job with like one month of internship. So I had really no choice but to figure out how to be a CRC. We had existing studies, man. Like the revenue was there. It was just being stolen by someone. And then the patients were coming in. And so I had to figure out. So I remember Googling like, what is a 1572? Like whenever my monitor would ask me something, I was afraid to tell them I don't know what I'm doing. So I would just Google. (laughs) I couldn't find anything. So that like planted a seed. I finally started hiring people. Five years later, I read this book by Gary Vaynerchuk, Crush It. It talks about how he started his wine business using YouTube. So that really inspired me. I was like, you know what? Yeah, I remember when I was Googling things I couldn't find. I got to 
there's got to be others. So I started creating a YouTube channel. But initially, I was trying to do it selfishly. I wanted to get patients to my site. Like, so I thought, like, if I interview patients, like, what is the consent form? Not only will it help the sites, but it's going to help mostly help patients learn about my site. And if they were a patient in New York, I'm in California, I could probably make a business to refer them to a site there. And I had like a vague, vague business plan, but nothing real. I just wanted to see what would happen. So did you know, did you know that was content marketing at the time? No, but I learned quickly because I read that book. That book really changed my life, man. Gary Vaynerchuk. Like it's his best book ever, despite what he says. But so it turns out that most of the comments were not patients uh, to my surprise and no longer my surprise. Now, patients are not looking if they don't know what clinical research is, they're not going to look at what's an informed consent. That's just three steps further ahead than where they're at in their mind. But sites were and sites were reaching out and saying, hey, thank you for this. How about this question? Can you answer it? So I realized, all right, my audience is like actually sites and wannabe CRAs and wannabe CRCs. So I I just pivoted the content a year later to that. And it's been on that trajectory ever since. Was that the beginning of you as clinical trials guru? Is that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've been doing that for 20 years plus. Yep. 10 years plus. Came up with that name, was brainstorming a name like, what's the name? Clinical Trials TV. I wanted Clinical Trials TV, but she decided Clinical Trials Guru. And yeah, just stuck with it since then. So 2010 when I started. So yeah, 12 years now. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, truly the OG. So let's go back a little bit further in time. So you were a science major. Clinical research was not on your radar. What were you going to do before you landed in clinical research? Honestly, man, in college, like I always had entrepreneurial DNA, entrepreneurial tendencies, but I didn't realize it. I realize it now in hindsight, ever since a kid. So in college, I just wanted a decent job and my own place. <laughs> like I was not ambitious at all. And my dad told me CRA. So I already knew about CRA, like in my senior year. So I started applying to Ikevia, all of them, PPD. Of course, I didn't even get like one message back because they're not going to hire somebody in college, which I learned later, like it's huge, huge issue with the labor shortage there. Nothing much has changed actually since then. But yeah, I was like, I had no ambitions, man. Like I just wanted... Let me make six figures and have my own place. I just wanted a simple life. <laughs> and then you ended up in this embezzlement Ponzi scheme. Yeah, man. That lady quickly. was so, and she's done this before. She was like an office manager for doctors. So she, apparently she was, it wasn't the first place that she did this, like ran this scheme. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Where are, but where that is was she now? Do you know? Do you know where she is? I have no idea, but I ran into her daughter once at a party and we didn't even know it was her daughter. Her daughter is cool, but I had no idea until later. Like, that's her daughter? Jeez. (laughs) Was she wearing bling? (laughs) You know where she got it from. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, she's fairly wealthy. All right. So let's fast forward. Like you, you had a pretty strong career in clinical research as a coordinator, as site personnel. You started your own company, Yuma Clinical Trials. Tell us a little bit about Yuma. Where are you? What kind of research do you do? How big? you. Yeah, Yuma Clinical Trials, it's Yuma, Arizona's first research center that's not part of the hospital monopoly that's here. The hospital does oncology and emergency studies only. So there's never been an outpatient research site or center in Yuma. Yuma is a town of about 150,000. 
on the Arizona California border and the Mexican border. So it's there's like three borders here. Very diverse, mostly Hispanic. Seeing a lot of the challenges with that. It ties in to Latinos in Clanker Research, like mm-hmm. our other brand where we actually try to get more Latinos to work in the industry, hopefully to get more Latino patients to participate. It's been surprisingly easy to get studies here. You know, I've partnered with three PIs and we've three different specialists and been able to get six studies in a year. Year, which is great. Hire yeah. two coordinators. This is my like my fourth site that I have ran. This mm-hmm. one I started, but well, five if you include the first one. So yeah, my fifth site, but one of them still around actually, and one of them I sold, and then two of them failed. <laughs> Wait, you got that's how you learn. <laughs> so your PIs yeah. are they pure investigators, or do they have practices no. elsewhere? Yeah, and they work yeah, with you. Practices. Yeah. Their private practice first, it's really tough to get them like used to research like, oh, this is a monitor. She's going to come in and, you know, kind of tell us what we did wrong. But don't worry, that's my job to keep them happy. So they're learning. But yeah, they're busy. And honestly, their value is in their database. So I need them to keep seeing patients because Mm -hmm. I need more patients to screen from. You know, these studies are very complex now. There's a lot of exclusion criteria today. I'm wearing the shirt because I have to go to the site later. There's an early term visit. Sponsor dropped the patient due to a very small ECG, like fine print on an ECG. Technically, they let us randomize her. And the next day, they told us we have to drop her. And it wasn't our fault. It was the central reader's fault. And now the patient thinks something's wrong with her. So I got to go talk to her about or ECG. Right. You know, why are sponsors playing tricks on you by like putting stuff in fine print? This is, I mean, this speaks to the larger problem that you posted something on, I think it was YouTube about like, not everyone's giving you a good sense of direction as to what to do and what order, what tech, like everything's buried in different footnotes and sections of the protocol. Talk to me about like that whole issue. I mean, I get it. One of the things that I didn't mention when I was introducing myself, I actually started a small CRO for investigator initiated trials. And that opened up a lot of sponsor side consulting work. So I did a lot of audits for sponsors. And I talked to a lot of the people, higher ups that are designing protocols and simultaneously dealing with investors. So I get the sponsor side. I don't want to bash sponsors. Like we actually don't understand us at the site level, unless you actually get out into their world, you don't understand what these people are dealing with. It does make sense if you actually get up under the hood. Most of the times, <laughs> could they make it easier for patients? Yes. So this is a perfect example. Like I get it. This was a safety issue. Well, it's a potential safety issue, but what they should have is a separate cohort for these kind of patients because mm. she's already in. So it could be like a separate cohort where you show the FDA, but you say, look, this is why these are in this cohort. I think there's a term for that too, like modified intent to treat or something like that. So they already have these cohorts, but I think they need more if they want to get truly patient centric. But yeah, they do. A lot of asinine things too. Like, first of all, they don't understand the site side, the site perspective. I talked to a biotech founder yesterday who's planning his first phase one study, and he has no idea how a site works, like zero idea. He was wanting to ask me like questions for like over an hour, like, what does the CRA do? Does the CRA work at the site? They had no clue, man. And they're yeah. about to plan a site, a study. Like, <laughs> So they're just going to hire a CRO who's going to do everything and load those sites with tech. And no wonder DCT seems attractive to these sponsors. Yeah. 
I mean, to your point, we don't have to beat up the sponsors too bad. I used to work at a sponsor and I can tell you a lot of it is due to sort of innocent ignorance. I've learned more in the past like three months than I ever knew about clinical research in the last 23 years because I've been working with sites a lot more intently. The end user of our product is a site, even though the value is for everyone and sponsors are customers. So I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me, of course. But to your point, it's it's they don't know the site operations that well. And frankly, there's no good tool. So a lot of the tech companies out there for clinical research haven't focused on making the site's life easier. They've been focusing too much on like collecting the data, not how that data gets collected through the workflow that you guys painstakingly have to do. Yeah. Or where that data comes from. I Mm -hmm. mean, it came from somebody, me, and my CRCs calling 100 patients to get 10 of them to say okay, to get two of them to actually qualify, yep. you know, to get one to be dropped out the next day. Yeah, <laughs> right. For this, like, that's for a this lot very, of work. For this very important reason. But yeah, now you have to pick up the pieces and explain this to her, which is a very human thing that you want to be able to do with excellence. And no piece of tech is going to replace Dan Sfera approaching a patient and helping no. them fully appreciate what's going on here. So let's talk about that. No, go go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, tech can definitely make life easier, but a lot of what we do as sites cannot be replaced by tech. Mm -hmm. I don't see how, unless you clone my CRC somehow into an algorithm and they're able to work autonomously. But there's just so many things and every protocol is different too. This makes it even more complex. What makes a good CRC? Oh, man, it changes. So initially, it's like potential, like a curiosity. For me, I know the learning curve's insane, like three to six months minimum. And that's if you have a good trainer. So what I look for is like curiosity and some kind of ambition, at least for your own career or preferably science related ambitions, because it's a lot of work, like pre-screening a patient with on 20 meds and then cross-referencing that with the protocol where they just list the classes of drugs, not necessarily the names. So then you got to Google and then okay, well, what does this actually do? Why? Like to get into the nuts and bolts of why and which meds are allowed, which ones aren't, takes some curiosity. And you can't even train that as the site director. Like you can tell them, but if somebody's not curious and takes their own initiative, like after 10 patients, they're like, yeah, PI will catch it. I'm just going to screen them. That's what I look for. And then a willingness to learn. Obviously, you got to have a good attitude, which is actually surprisingly tough (laughs) these days. And then keeping them once they do figure things out, like after a year or two, retention. And the CROs are struggling with this. I think us sites, the small sites have an advantage because we can allow our employees to climb within our organization. As we grow, I already told my first two employees, you guys are going to be directors. You're going to learn what I'm doing so I can get out and just do biz dev. And eventually you're going to do that too. And we're just going to keep bringing in people underneath. So there's upward mobility at the smaller sites. I think that gets a little bit lost at the large CROs. And I'm not sure how that works at sponsor levels. I love that you didn't list like credentials and education and you were really just talking about personality traits that make a good CRC, a clinical research coordinator, go. I think to your point, unless we live in the matrix and you can download 10 years of scientific knowledge, no one kind of comes to the table with this stuff and it's the curiosity that drives them. And how many protocols might CRC be running at any given time in your, well, I know it's six, but what's like a good ratio in your head? Like what's the max? 
for like an experienced CRC of two years or more, it varies wildly on the study. I mean, some studies are super complex. Some studies, you're never going to roll anyone, unfortunately. Like you're just going to have five screen failures like our other study. I think six to 10, I think seeing one or two patients a day per coordinator is max. Because at my site, my coordinator also does data entry. At my site, coordinator does ISF maintenance. At my site, really, the coordinator does everything. Pre-screening, yeah. retention, all that stuff. So two visits a day max. I don't care how many studies that is. But we have six and we have two coordinators. So we have definitely we have room to grow. And if you're seeing two patients a day as a small site, that's significant. I mean, we're talking if you can maintain that throughout a year, that's seven figure revenue for yeah. a small business. A lot yeah. of these doctors offices are struggling to do those kind of numbers, seeing like 40 patients a day. Wow. In the old day, if you can hearken back, how many were you you able to do? How many patients were you able to see in a day? And is there like what's changed between then and now, if at all? My first site so when I took over and it was like a sinking ship, it was just <laughs> me. I was doing like three visits a week. And yeah. I thought that was like insane workload because I remember I'm learning everything. So yeah, when a patient comes, it's like I'm spending all day making sure like to get out of there. But then the rest of the day, just like, how do I not screw this up? I hired my first employee and she came from another site and she had a whiteboard and she drew on there. She said, how many, we need to make projections for these studies. How many do you want to see a week? Because I'm experienced, I can see patients. And I was like, oh, well, I'm doing three now. So if we can do six with you, that's awesome. And she laughed at me. She was like, no, you can do six a day if you want. So by the time we figured it out, we hired like five people. By 2009, we were doing like six a day. And that was a super good year for us, 2009. And then the cut started happening. I remember the Sanofi Aventus called us and said, hey, every patient that's in early term, wow. you know, that's when Lehman yeah. Brothers went. Yeah, the world went, went down up. the toilet. So, <laughs> yeah, so it was like both extremes, like highs and lows of the roller coaster. But yeah, we made seven figures that year. And as a 29 year old, that's pretty good. Yeah. Like I was happy. And then I learned the hard way about taxes and all that. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think study coordinators or research sites can get to that six patients a day? And if yes. Yeah. And if not, tell me, yeah, tell me what has to be true to make that happen. Or you need one or two good studies, good studies where not ones you think are good ones that you actually have a history of randomizing patients consistently because you only get paid when you enroll patients, not when you screen patients. Yeah. You only get paid when you enroll patients. So if you can maintain that consistently, it's actually very easy with just one or two studies to get up to six a day. We can actually do six a day now. Well, with our new study, once it starts, we have our SIV in a few weeks. Sure. And that one, I think we can enroll. We got lucky with that one. It's a phase four, but the budget's decent. So we can enroll a lot of patients in that one. So it's not that hard, man. Two studies and two good coordinators. Mm -hmm. And you can be one of them if you're the site owner. Right. Yeah. And, you know, certainly if it's a study that can enroll a lot, like a prevalent chronic ambulatory disease or a vaccine, for sure. Others it can be harder, where if you enroll six patients, that's probably you're in the middle of the pack of the site enrollment curve. And yeah. that might take you, and what, six months to do. And so you're seeing one patient every month kind of a thing or every other week. Yes. Yeah. And some studies like rare disease studies, I mean, you'll work your ass off to get one randomization and sponsor thinks you're a hero. <laughs> you know, for getting one patient. Others like this phase four one, where I feel like our coordinators can actually do more than two a day on that one. It's relatively simple study. So yeah. every study is different. 
and we haven't done vaccine study. I've yet to do a vaccine study in my life. I know the numbers for those ones are totally different than what I'm spitting out here. These are traditional phase two through four outpatient studies of some kind of therapeutic condition, not not vaccines. Let's talk about a controversial issue around feasibility and what it takes to actually do the study or at least say, hey, I think I can do it. In talking to Brad Hightower, it sometimes it amounts to catfishing, right? Like, hey, here's the study. Great. I think I'm going to crush it. And then you actually see the real study and you're like, wait a second, this isn't. And so what often happens is sponsors may perceive that you've overestimated your enrollment. They play this game of cut it in half. And then you see the actual protocol and it's actually half of that. Like help us understand that whole weird dynamic there. Cause I think everyone is innocent in some way. They're all trying to do the right thing with integrity, but we end up in this weird cat and mouse game of, can you do the study? How many patients you can enroll? Yeah, it's very strange. The Brad, I love that guy. So I wouldn't say it's always innocent. I've straight up face-to-face been told by a CRA that loved our site and she wanted us to get another protocol, I think, because we were easy to monitor for her. Yeah. Make sure on this feasibility that you embellish your numbers. Literally what she told us. And she's an ally trying to make sure we get the study. So that right there tells you everything you need to know about how this is. Now, yes, just so happens yesterday on Latinos in Clinical Research free webinar every month, free latinosinclinicalresearch.com. We had a feasibility. She's like director of feasibility at a large CRO on. And so this question actually came up and she said, you know what, we have like an average and then we have outliers and those outliers, we really like kind of audit. We question their numbers, but then in the middle, we discount that. Mm -hmm. So they already, it's already built in. So here's a director of feasibility at a big CRO telling you, no matter what you put, even if it's the truth, you're getting discounted. So Mm -hmm. what do we do? What do we see in the economy? Inflation. All right. Yeah. Well, two patients becomes three, actually, or maybe four. Let's just double yeah. our numbers. Every site does this. I don't care what they tell you. I don't care what they say at SCRS or DIA. It's all BS, man. All of it, unless they're brand new and they don't know what they're doing. Right. Yeah, and and, and here's <laughs> the thing, Joe, because I try to be honest, like there are studies where I don't care if I get them or not. All right. So I have the luxury there to be honest. And when I do those feasibilities, and I'm trying to give honest answers. I have my PIs database right in front of me. I can search. So they give you the synopsis. You go through the IE criteria, but you don't really go through it. And here's the problem. What these studies become so complex. Okay, we had a psoriasis study, moderate to severe. They want like very bad on the outside and perfectly normal on the inside. My PI said, this is not. you're not going to find these patients. When it's psoriasis, we don't do a pulmonary function test. Mm. So we have no way of knowing. And that's just exclusion criteria 19. You know, there's 33 <laughs> of these things in there. <laughs> There's 33 of these exclusion criteria. We don't do PFT in standard of practice. So how do we know, unless we call every single patient in our database and have them come in and do a PFT, we have no way of knowing how many are going to screen fail. By the way, I know the number, it's 90% will Mm. screen fail. Mm -hmm. And that's just for that one exclusion criteria. Yeah. So even when you try to be honest, you're not going to give the sponsor like it's not going to reflect in your actual outcomes because the IE criteria is so complex and you have no way of knowing. 
You're just guessing. Doctors don't do PFT tests for psoriasis visits. Right. They just don't do that. It's not standard of care. So how can we know? And it's just going to be a crapshoot and it's probably going to not work in your favor. Yeah. And there's hundreds of these examples. Yeah. That's just one. What about operationally where you say, okay, I think I could do this. And then you the SIV comes around and you're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is... Not what um, I signed up for? It's not usually at the SIV. It's usually when the patient's there. <laughs> <laughs> so the SIV, you're just like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. You know, let's just do it. Patient comes in. I have another example. All these things I'm telling you are like examples from my clinic. Recent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We have a study that requires an x-ray, but the x-ray is not standard of care x-ray. It's a special type of x-ray, right? Where the vendor, we don't own the x We're not BSF. So we don't own our x-ray facility. We're thinking about it actually, yeah. because it's it actually looks promising to do that maybe. So we go to the vendor and say, hey, we want x-rays based for this protocol. By the way, you have to do this training. So let's book an hour for your tech who's already overburdened. Let's book an hour with your tech. I'll give you like a Starbucks gift card or something. All right, they'll do it. Standard of care. The patient comes in to the x-ray vendor. Guess what? The standard of care procedure is done, not the research procedure. Oh, no. <laughs> and despite going in the retraining and retraining and the vendors keeps having turnover. So there's always somebody new and they could care less, Joe. They don't give a damn like they get paid the same. And there's only so many times I can go in there and drop off like gift cards because then it's somebody new. So we do our best. But that procedure, which is not meant to be difficult. On paper, it's not difficult. It's becoming the most difficult part of the study mm. to the point where patients have to wait over an hour to get an x-ray because they are so worried about screwing it up that they need the right tech to come in. Wow. And it's causing the patient to wait an hour, two hours. We have to sit there. Coordinator has to babysit the patient. I, I've and heard. So that's I've, an example. I've heard other versions of this exact story. And what's so hard about trying to understand what to do? Is it because it's in two different manuals or like someone has to watch a video? Like what's what makes it hard without giving it away, I guess? <laughs> well, in this particular example, I think the academic medical centers for once have an advantage because they can control the whole process. You know, it's their vendor, like they are the vendor so they can dictate who's there and how they do it. We small sites, we're at the mercy of our external vendors. Mm -hmm. So I'm in charge of my CRCs. I'm not in charge of this x-ray tech. Like no matter what I say, if their boss is telling them, hey, just tell Dan whatever he wants to hear to get him out of here, but we have 90 patients waiting right now. So I don't have that control where an AMC might, but then the AMCs have plenty of other issues. That's another podcast. Yeah. So this is a good segue into decentralized trials, because as if the idea is to have a lot of other third parties deliver per protocol procedures, you're not going to have authority or influence over some of these folks, but you as the peak, not you, but your PI has responsibility. So you're kind of upside down with like, I have, I still have the responsibility for safety of the patient and delivery of the study, but some retail clinic is doing X, Y, and Z, right? And if yeah. you're going to have five different third parties doing things for the protocol, like how does that square with you? Or have you thought about that implication in DCT? Of course. I don't see how that's going to work. I mean, my CRCs, and me, we're willing to sit with the patient for an hour. And one of the patients, he screen felt, but I promised him a six pack. He told me, I said, hey, man, I'm so sorry. You know, we'll give you extra like 30 bucks. No, Dan, just give me a six pack one of these days. So I owe him a six pack. 
But who's going to do that from a DCT vendor? Like who's getting that VC money and that incentive in their salary to babysit, pretty much babysit a patient throughout the various assessments, Mm. all managed by third party vendors, different ones. I don't see how that's going to work out and without giving consideration to the patient's time. Like, how can we assume that they're okay with vendors just showing up, even if it's at their house? Convenient to the patient, right? Well, what if they're not home? Like, what what if they work? What are you going to do? How is a vendor just going to pop in because a sponsor wants them to without checking with the patient? These kind of things are complicated, man. And the more procedures, like the whole point of DCT is to make life easier for the patients. But on the other side, sponsors see it as an opportunity to throw more assessments in there, to collect more data. Everything's Mm. data. So those two things conflict. And I think you need like human beings to put them together, not tech. I don't think tech's going to do it. Well, certainly not five different parties trying to do each little piece of the pie. That gets tricky. And if you're going to do it, that better be tightly orchestrated like nothing else. (laughs) I'm willing to drive my patients to El Centro, which is 45 minutes away in California, to do an x-ray if our vendor's not available to meet a sponsor timeline. Who's going to do that in a DCT? The CEO, once he gets off his platform at SCRS. Yeah. (laughs) Or it'll certainly be expensive if it's. (laughs) Yeah, it's not their money. So, hey, let's put them on a helicopter. Listen, we're going to definitely have you back. There's a ton more to talk about, but I want to have a teaser because I want to talk about Latinos in clinical research. Tell us Uh, more about this effort and how it fits into diversity in general. And what can you sort of tee up for our next podcast around diversity? Mm, Well, okay. So I was inspired by Danielle Mitchell, who came on my podcast from Black Women in Clinical Research. And I interviewed her about her idea. And I thought it was awesome. And I asked her at the end, I said, do you mind if... I think it's actually recorded. It's live. Do you mind if we do Latinos in Clinical Research, if I get Monica and a few other of my colleagues to say yes? And she's like, yeah, the more the merrier. So not my idea at all but a very good idea. And first of all, we're inclusive of everyone, all background. I'm not Latina. I just work with a lot of them. My wife is Latina. I'm like an adopted Latina, (laughs) but I would have never done this if Monica, Ashley, Judy would not have said yes, because they do most of the work. But basically we're trying to provide a safe place for mainly minorities, but really anyone to come in and share their concerns with the industry. And it's mostly about hiring and promotions and executive positions. And we hope that if we get more Latinos working in research, that we can have a trickle down effect to patients, more Latino patients enrolling. And we're even planning on hitting up junior colleges and high schools to get the youngins interested in research. Because if we can get them early, you want to spend an hour to talk about medical assistance and CNAs and their career options in regular healthcare versus clinical research. Regular healthcare. For a medical assistant, by the way, largely Hispanic, okay, the ceiling is like 60K if they're lucky a year, if they're lucky. And that's changing diapers at nursing homes. That's doing all kinds of stuff. Research, MA, I hired one. Site director, that's already six figures plus, right? Within a short period of time. If they do it long enough, in-house CRA, CRA, if they want. I mean, they can do so much more in research than they can in regular healthcare. 
And if we can get some of them curious about research, I think we've done something good for not just our industry, not just for them, but for society. So that's like the motivation behind Latinos in clinical research. I think you're totally on the right track. It's the idea to increase diversity isn't just plastering the right color person on some poster, right? (laughs) It's about the people doing the work. It's about the location in which they do it. People want to see themselves and interact with others like them, for sure. That word equity in DENI, right? It's supposed to be equality, but it turns into equity. True equity is when you have ownership, right? Whether it's in a company, that's the purest form of equity. You own a company or a part of it, or you have equity in your own position, meaning you're in a position that gives you freedom to move up based on your hard work and merit. It's not something you just give somebody and it's not just a virtue signal. Like it's real stuff. Yeah. 100%. Dan, we could talk probably for three more hours, but you have patience to attend to. Uh, this patient's freaking out because they think something's wrong with them. (laughs) I got to get my PI to talk to her too. But listen, we're going to definitely have you back on. Thanks a bunch for coming on. It's great to have the original gangster on this show. (laughs) Keep doing what you're doing. You're speaking truth to power. And yeah, we'll talk soon. Have a great day. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for tuning into Research Confidential. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about us, show notes, transcripts, and resources, please visit proofpilot.com. If you'd like to debunk a clinical research myth, share some war stories, or maybe just show our audience what kind of heroics it takes to pull off gold standard research, send us your thoughts, episode ideas, and more to help at proofpilot.com. This show was presented by Proofpilot and is powered by Outcomes Rocket. Outcomes Rocket.